we are human beings. There's two, two approaches. One is to identify with a common shared interest, and the other is to say, you're a different tribe. That's one argument when you got spears. It's another argument when you got nuclear weapons. This is A New Angle, and I'm your host, Justin Angle, marketing professor at the University of Montana. This podcast is my chance to speak with cool people doing awesome things in and around the great state of Montana. We are proudly underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications. Hey folks, welcome back and thanks for tuning in today. This week, I had the honor of going on location with Montana public radio legend, Brian Kahn. For the past 23 years, Brian has hosted Home Ground Radio, a weekly interview show that finds interesting people and asks them who they are, what they think, and what they're doing about it. Brian is so much more than a radio talk show host. He's a deep thinker, an organizer, activist, writer, and an important voice, not only here in Montana, but far beyond. He's someone we all can learn from, particularly during this fraught political time. Brian's new book, America, Rediscovering My Country, releases next month, and we talk all about that project in today's conversation. It was an honor to spend some time with Brian at his in-home studio in Helena, and I'm excited to bring you our conversation right now. Okay, so we're here today with Brian Kahn. Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks a lot for driving over. I appreciate it. Yeah, so we're in your living room, which is where you record your show. Um, Most of our shows are done here. Obviously, when we're traveling, we're traveling. Yeah, and so this is, um, I guess, for me, a strange experience in the sense that, um, you know, when I launched this podcast, uh, you were one of the first requested guests, and it's taken us a while to kind of connect and get this done, but uh, here we are, and I sort of feel like I'm up in, in, in on your territory. So well, I me- try to do that to intimidate you, of course, if you have you here in my house, you know, I mean, these are subtle suggestions. <laughs> yeah, I'm very intimidated. Okay, don't look at me. <laughs> well, thanks for having me, and thanks for being willing to come on. Um, it's been uh, fantastic to learn more about your work. I mean, I had listened before, you know, before this conversation, I'd been a somewhat, um, yeah, somewhat regular listener of your, your Sunday program. Um, but it's been fascinating to kind of get into your background and your writing and your, and your history and yeah, just excited to have this conversation today. Um, a lot of our listeners said, yeah, you know, Brian interviews everybody, but we've never really heard his story. I've tried to keep it undercover. (laughs) So why did you say yes to this? A moment of gullibility. There you go. No, actually I listened to your show. You contacted me and you gave me a couple of samples Mm -hmm. and, uh, I was impressed with you and with one of your daughters who was, was oh, involved right. in one of the shows. And, and she said, but you didn't ask him this. And I thought, that is one sharp nine-year-old. Yeah. Yeah, they often come into the studio to help me kind of uh, record little bits when I need it. And they do a good job of staying quiet. So I figured, why not get them on and, and let it come to life for them? Um, yeah, so we're here today. A lot of things to talk about. I mean, sort of, we, we just had a chance to, to chat for a half hour or so before recording about so many incredible topics that we'll get to. Um, the thing I'd like to start with is, is uh, you have a book about to come out. Yeah, it's called America Rediscovering My Country. It's the narrative of a 50-day trip. It's 50 consecutive days, 49 of which we filmed that I took 13 years ago across the United States with a Russian documentary film crew, 11-person crew. And it's the distilled recollections of that trip, which 
taught me I didn't know much about the United States of America. And if you said at the beginning of that trip, how much do you know about your country? I'd say, well, probably 80%. I mean, I've been here for 60 years. And an active, engaged citizen throughout yeah. those years, yeah. So I was wrong. <laughs> and it was a, a very uh, moving and challenging and stimulating experience. Uh, we went from Detroit across the heading southwest, uh, Chicago, Peoria, Gallup, New Mexico, Las Vegas, San Francisco, Los Angeles, and then across Texas and ended wow. up Louisiana, Memphis, uh, Norfolk, Virginia, back to Washington, D.C., and, 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 and interviewed a wide, wide range of people. Yeah, what was the premise for the trip? How did it come together? Uh, I had gotten to know a guy named Vladimir Posner, who's a dual citizen and a leading Russian journalist. When I met him, he was a Soviet journalist. I worked with him on his memoir called Parting with Illusions, which came out in 91 when the Soviet Union collapsed. Uh, and 16 years later, I ran into him in Moscow. I was there to celebrate his friend's retirement. And he said, what are you doing in six weeks? And the, he, he was retracing the tour in 1935 taken by two Russian authors, okay. two Soviet authors, who wrote a trip called Golden, Little Golden America, mm -hmm. about rural America, because to the Europeans and to Russians, New York City was America. And so this was Posner's retracing their trip with television cameras instead of writing a book about it. And so that was the origin of the trip. And it took us to... Muslim communities, African-American communities, farming, ranching communities, gay community in San Francisco, Sandra Day O'Connor in Washington, D.C. Uh, it, was, it was a fantastic exposure to the diversity in America, and I benefited immensely from it. And the, this book is, is the story of the journey. Yeah, and you sent me an excerpt um, from the, this, the portion of the book where you— you recount your opportunity to interview Justice O'Connor, mm -hmm. and um, you know the intent of going into the interview. And, and you had 15 minutes—a a hard 15 minutes—and you know, how do I use? <laughs> I, I, I got to be wondering what's going through your mind. Like, how do I use these 15 minutes to get something interesting, yeah, exactly. new, something different? Yeah, I had written her from Helena here and said. That I was struck by the fact she grew up in a rural environment, and mm -hmm. uh, I'd like to discuss that as one of the things we discussed. And as I was writing her, she knew I was an attorney because I put it on my stationery. And much to my surprise, I got word from her assistant that she accepted the invitation. Wow. Didn't say why, but okay, so we end up going there. And I have to say, I had never been in the Supreme Court building, mm -hmm. and it's very powerful. If yeah. you understand the history of law in America, better and worse. The Supreme Court is a major, major institution in the evolution of the rule of law. Yeah, so at that point, can I just interject? Yeah, sure, at that sure. point, what is the significance of that institution to you? How do you view it? I view it as the institution that sanctioned discrimination against black people in the late 80s, uh, sanctioned slavery in the, in the, in the 1850s, uh, both ruling that both that slavery and segregation were constitutional mm -hmm. uh, among our greatest travesties of, quote, rule of law. And then I associate it with Brown versus Board of Education, 1954, right. when segregation was struck down by a unanimous Supreme Court, saying the doctrine of separate but equal was fundamentally irre irretrievably flawed because separation 
is not equal. Mm -hmm. uh, and Roe v. Wade, cases on criminal law which established the right to an attorney as a condition of a trial for a crime, uh, those decisions and many others take the Bill of Rights and bring them to life mm -hmm. in the real world. So I associate this, the building of the Supreme Court with those incredibly important decisions. So to go into that building and then look into the chamber where you see the arguments had been made yeah. and the decisions announced. And we did the interview with Justice O'Connor in the room that attorneys waited in to go fear for the court. I oh, mean, gosh. It was sort of yeah, pretty yeah, powerful setup. for me. And... Uh, to see her come out and her assistant had said, you will have 15 minutes, and she means no offense, but she will get up and leave because she, that's the way they run the court, you know. It, uh -huh. it turned out that she gave us 25 minutes. Um, and it was full of wonderful little things. One, walking down the hall, coming toward me, and I'm there to, quote, greet her, to show her in the room, her eyes, she just sized you up without saying a word, you know, who is this guy that sure. I agree to be interviewed. Went in, gestured to her seat. She ignored me and went and shook everybody's hand. On the every whole member of the crew, yeah. 11 people in the crew and two electricians from the, her, her building to make sure things worked. And it, it wasn't, it was just, it, and, and it was part of her rural heritage. I, mm -hmm. I observed as we went on the different things that happened. Um, then she sat down and I tried, as you suggested, I had a goal, which was to draw her out. Who is this person as a human being, and how did that potentially influence her judicial opinions, right. which were huge? Uh, she was a swing vote on affirmative action, uh, many other big cases. So what was her, what, what, how did her life affect her judgment as a judge? And we like to think that the law is an abstract doctrine and, and some of the Justice Roberts, Chief Justice, said we're umpires. We're calling balls and strikes. That is not the case. People's life values profoundly influence their judgments on the court. You can say it's bad, you can say it's good, but it's the truth. Mm -hmm. Anyway, the, the, the second question, the first question I asked her had to do with what she learned in these different levels of legal practice, and I got a lawyer's answer that would have put anybody to sleep, including the listeners of this program. Not, I don't mean this, but the listeners to the show that we were putting on. Right, but you were you're wasting some of your minutes, right? Exactly, wasting my minutes. The second question was, I understand you grew up on a ranch, a rural cattle ranch in Arizona. Mm. How much has that influenced your life and work? And boy, that was, the, that was open the jar and the flowers just started blooming. And she talked about ranch life and how there was no time to posture you had to make things work and work efficiently, get it done. Sure. And, and, and her whole judicial philosophy that spun off of that was the same kind of principle. You have to understand the key facts and make the correct decision. And, and it was exemplified at that time, and still to this day, there's a historic debate between the advocates of the living Constitution, which say we have to visualize the words in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights in the modern world, in the context of the modern world, and those that say, no, that's gobbledygook, you have to say the, the, the um, you have to look at what the, they meant and what they meant is what it applies today. Sure, the originalist perspective. Originalist perspective, yeah. exactly, and Scalia would be the paragon of that. I said, what do you think of that, Justice O'Connor? She said, I don't think it's a very helpful discussion. Hmm. She reached into her purse, which was sitting by her chair. 
She said, I always carry a copy of the Constitution with me. She took out a paperback copy of the Constitution, rather small, and read two clauses. The first said, no state shall be formed within the boundary of an existing state. She said, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Right. If it's clear, you apply it. Then she read from, I think, the Fourth Amendment, which says no one will be subject to unreasonable search and seizure. Mm -hmm. She said they didn't have infrared technology when they wrote that. You have to look at that provision in the light of modern technological reality. And then she put away the purse. So in about 60 in terms, seconds. In terms of defining what's reasonable exactly and unreasonable. Exactly correct. Yeah. In less than a minute, she had summarized the most practical approach to this thing that had taken these justices traveling out all the country, the sure. country for years debating this stuff, tens of thousands of pages. That was Senator Dale O'Connor's response. And the other thing that she said that struck me as very, very serious was when I asked her the level of understanding of the average American of the Constitution of the United States and the Bill of Rights, around, around which people make gestures of uh, respect. And she said, it's not only Amer the American people who don't understand the Constitution very well. Most legislators don't understand the Constitution. Mm -hmm. Now, that's a pretty serious statement. It is. And she was not a person given to exaggeration. The only time she raised her voice at all was when I said, and you were the first woman to serve on the United States Supreme Court, correct? Appointed by President Reagan. And she said, yes, and it took, I won't get the number right, 152 years far too long. Yeah. And so it was a great, for me, a great experience. And at the end, she gets up and says to her assistant, do you have the constitutions? And she had brought constitutions, which she signed for everybody in the room. Wow. It was great. That's a treasure. I have mine, I can tell you that. I'm sure you still do. You Probably bet. everybody on the crew does as well. Yes, it was, that was a great moment. Yeah. So speaking of, um, you know, a ranch experience from from formative years, mm -hmm. informing life decisions. You grew up in California? Most of my life, from the age of nine till I left for college, I was in Sonoma County, California, which was farming country, vineyard country, dairy country, a couple of ranches, but it wasn't cattle ranch country. Right, and came to Montana f to work as a ranch hand one summer? I came in 66 to fish uh, and fell in love with the Madison Valley. Okay and came back to the same ranch, the Neely Ranch, on Cliff Lake, and worked for Monty and Sue Neely as a ranch hand slash cowboy for the summer and fall of 69 with my wife and very small child. And uh, it was one of the experiences that I would have to say had a major impact on my life. Yeah, did you learn sort of that similar perspective that Justice O'Connor was expressing, the, the purposeful existence? Yeah, that was certainly part of the the ethic of making things work. There's not time for, there's time for drinking. <laughs> there's not time for sitting around doing nothing. Uh, you have to have a practical approach. There are limited resources. At that time, there was no electricity on the ranch other than an electric generator on the ranch, which generated power in the evenings. We started up the diesel generator. Uh, they did have a telephone. We had an outhouse that we used for the for the ranch workers. But what was most, I had been around that sort of thing because I, my childhood had been spent working with uh, my little league coach on his prune farm. And I was used to the hard work and focused atmosphere of agricultural production. Sure. What was different in the 
at the Neely Ranch was the power of the landscape in terms of the mountains, the rivers, the wildlife, the elk, moose, grizzly bear occasionally, yeah. coyotes. That's, that, that was very powerful sure, to me. the scale, too, I would imagine. You've got the scale of the landscape. And then in that landscape, the personality seemed to magnify of the individuals. There were very few people in the Upper Madison then, year-round. Mm-hmm. And, and no subdivision, rural subdivision sprawl. So there might, between Ennis and, and the ranch, 40 miles, there might have been 10 different ranches. I'm yeah. just throwing that number out. The personalities of those individuals mattered. So it was almost like the personalities of the few were magnified by their scarcity in that grand landscape. The other thing was learning about horses. I had ridden as a child, casually. Okay. We had a horse, casually. Mondanili was a difficult man. He drank too much. He didn't trust people. This is the ranch owner. Yes, yeah. but he loved horses. Okay. And not in a sentimental way. He understood they were essential to his survival as a rancher. Hmm. And he taught me to understand the importance of understanding your horse and respecting your horse and treating your horse with care and consideration. We rode up a ridge one morning, straight up a steep ridge, and I was surprised he stopped and took, reached in his saddlebag and took out a, like a nugget of food, like we would say a dog treat, but it was for a horse. Yeah. He leaned forward, the horse turned back, and this was a fantastic mare he rode, famous in the valley, Shadow. And she took the candy, and I sat there, and he said, feed your horse. I said, I don't have any of those. So he gave me a half dozen. And I said, why do you feed the horse, Bonnie? He said, because she's carrying up this steep country. <laughs> and you ought to be grateful. Yeah. And then he said to me a little later, he said, you better get to know your horse because someday it will save your life. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it did. That day came for you. The day came for me. I'd worked at this horse, Pedro, for quite a while. And I was hunting elk. And being a young, reckless guy, an elk jumped up and blow down timber and dropped off the ridge out of sight on my right-hand side. You always get up and get off and on a horse on the left-hand side. Okay. So I swung my rifle, which was I had pulled out. It was in my left hand over the horse's neck and jumped off on the right side, kicked off the, the stirrup on the left side and jumped off on the right side. Problem. My right-hand boot stuck in the stirrup, and I ended up lying on my back with my foot stuck in the, foot stuck in the stirrup and my horse standing in blow-down timber looking at me like, what the F are you doing? Right. I remember his eye rolling and looking at me as he sidestepped, started to shift, sliding away from me. He was a spooky horse, but I had spent months working with him on different things. I, got to, I could shoot a rifle off him, and you know, we got to know each other. If I had done that two months earlier, he would have taken off across those blown down and torn me to shreds. Dragged and your leg me, right off. Just yeah. totally wiped out. Yeah. Gave me time. I reached up, knocked the stirrup off my shoe and got up and was able to shoot the elk. And only then did I realize, holy Toledo, uh, that horse saved my life for my stupidity. So it was a very powerful experience, and I still find myself saying things like dandy fine, which was something that Bonnie Neely would say. Okay. And I I, I developed a deep and ongoing respect for people in the ranching community. And that is not unaltered admiration. We all are flawed. We all have strengths and weaknesses, but 
I feel very comfortable around ranch people. And how did that experience sort of shape your subsequent choices? I mean, you went back to California, law school, um, advocacy work, endangered species, and, and eventually landed here in Montana. It, it affected me so that I knew when I left I was coming back. Okay. There was no question about that. Um, and it made me feel I was home at home here hmm. uh, in that landscape and with those folks. And they had to have made you feel at home to some degree. I mean, yes. how did that work? Well, it was interesting. It was, it was not roses and sweet cream. Yeah. When I, when, we got to, when I got ready to leave the Neely Ranch, uh, I was working on a percentage of, of the gross. It was his proposal. Okay. And I calculated that for the four or six months I was working there, it would be about 500 bucks. I had room and board in addition to that. So I went up and I said, here's my calculations. And he said, no, I owe you about $100. Now, for me, not having any money, that was a significant difference. Yeah. So I went down and started developing, going through the books and the residual food that we, I'd go down to buy down in Idaho and, you know, the income and all this sort of stuff. And that came up. It was 500 bucks, you know, here or there. And I was packing up in a shed where I had brought some gear, and he walked through the door. And the way he walked through the door, I knew something was up. Now, I was in my 20s, and he was in his 40s. Mm-hmm. And I knew he had boxed and viewed, and I was a college boxer. Yeah, you've been a boxing coach, too. Oh, yeah, I was not, then, not yet the boxing coach okay. at University of California. This yeah. is 1969, but I had just finished my senior year as a boxing, yeah. and I'd done pretty well. And so you, was, uh, you sensed the moment. I sensed what he was suggesting, and uh, we had a dialogue that went something like this. Uh, well, you sure got what you wanted. He just stood in the doorway. Huh. And I said, uh, how do you mean? He said, you got your bull elk, got a couple of nice muleys, you got some good fishing in. I said, and I enjoyed the work, too. And he said, what work? Interesting. And when he said that, I knew he was looking to have a confrontation. Yeah. Um I said, well, working with this guy you brought out here to take him fishing, guiding and fishing up at the lake and repairing the engine on this truck. I'd rebuilt the engine on the truck and, you know, working the cattle, just this general stuff you asked me to do. Then he said, I knew it wouldn't work because I'm Irish and you're a Jew. Interesting. That's when there was no doubt what he was about. And he stepped forward and I could judge distance, you know, and he wasn't quite close enough to do anything. Uh But I was taller and I wasn't worried about that. And usually you think of something after the fact, but in this case, I thought of something in time. And I said, you got a decision to make. And he said, what's that? I said, if I leave here pissed off and don't feel I've been treated fairly, I'm not coming back. And you won't make any money off me. Because he had a guest ranch there. He had cabins that he and his dad had built in the 30s that he rented. And they're a wonderful place, by the way, if your listeners ever go to Cliff Lake, they're still there. It's a wonderful place to stay. But he made money from that, of course. I said, if I go away feeling fairly treated, I'll come back and you will make a lot of money off me and my family. Mm-hmm. And I just looked at him and he looked at me and then he turned and walked away and his wife came down with a check. Huh. For 500 or 100 For 500 Wow. So it wasn't all peaches. But the point is, it stuck with me yeah. in a good way. And uh, there were a lot of other people, not a lot of other. There were other individuals I associated with down there, Max Robinson and his family out of Harrison, 
uh, one of my dear friends over the next 35 years. And I just loved the landscape and deeply respected the people. Mm-hmm. And one of the themes you've explored in a lot of your work is this notion of Montana values. And you know, I think that the, not necessarily the tagline, but one of the descriptions of the, your show is, you know, we want to know who people are, what they think and what they're doing about it. I mean, yes, we could talk a lot about what you're doing about what you think, but let's get into what you think and what these, what this notion of Montana values is to you. Well, I guess it had to say the Neely ranch experience and the ranchers around that experience affected my beginning definition of Montana values. And it's, it's, uh, the risk is always oversimplification. Sure. I would say inevitably over, oversimplification. But to me, Montana has been, in all the time I've been here, and I've lived here 30 years now full-time, what I call a human-scale state. In other words, the bureaucracies aren't huge, political or economic, you're living in a human community where you can get to know people as people. And there is a basic respect that's reflected in when you walk down the street and someone says good morning to you. Uh, that's not typical in many parts of America. Uh, the politicians are known by first name. Right. It's, it was Max, but it was Bacchus, and John is Tester, and Steve Danes, and Greg, and Steve Bullock. And coming from California, which when I left probably had 25 million people, and the same size state, we had about 800,000 at that time. Uh-huh. It makes a difference. Yeah. And then there's traveling across Montana. You go to Butte or Billings, and you'll find somebody that knows you, and somebody that you know in Helena. I mean, it's, there's this extended community that I feel is foundational to the ability, not the, not the inevitable success, but to the ability to make thoughtful, honorable decisions that are in the benefit of the community broadly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's harder to maintain what I call a silo, where you just are living in your own world, working hard, totally absorbed, and in the process, losing touch with the broader community interests. A New Angle is underwritten by First Security Bank and Blackfoot Communications, two cool companies doing awesome things all over Montana. Hi, this is Anya Jabor, Regents Professor of History at the University of Montana, and you are listening to A New Angle. And, it, and to me, that's important. Um, because I think in the world we have today, as, uh, as uh, Mike Mansfield commented, I interviewed Mike, I think the last interview of his life when he was 96. Right. And he said something like, he said it better than I can say it because he was a very eloquent man. What we face today is the need to understand our neighbors, not just our neighbors in our town, but our neighbors around the world. We have to find ways to get along. Right. And I think he believed that Montana provided the training for that principle, hmm. of getting to know your neighbor. This is at a different scale. And I think there's truth in it. And I have had direct experience in Montana with dealing where people disagree. We've had a, a basically an environmental economic war going on here, a political war for yes. 30, 40 years. 
the environmentalists are portrayed as anti-job and uh, disrespectful of rural people. In some places, the rural people are portrayed as rapists of the forest or abusers of the land. That's a devastatingly unproductive conversation. Mm -hmm. And my personal experience has been, if you pick the right people from the different camps, people who are sufficiently confident in their own views to hear another point of view without being defensive, and also who are credible with their circle of friends, associates, you get them at a table. And walking in, they would say, not having spoken to the other people, but maybe seen newspaper comments or public hearing comments by them, these people are my opponents, somewhere between my opponents to my enemies. And they all look at each other with the same thing. You sit them down at a table, and you start a conversation as a facilitator, a, a neutral person, mediator. Right, and you, this is a large part of your work, is conflict it has been mediation. For, it has yeah. been about 20-some years, yeah. Over a period of two or three meetings of two hours each, and let's say you're dealing with 10 people at the table, no more, they hear what the other person has to say. They're looking them in the eye. They, set, they test whether they're sincere or not by their body language and their tone of voice. Mm -hmm. And they start to listen. And there's something that's the same reason I do only face-to-face -face radio shows. You and I are looking each other right in the eye. Right. You're not going to bullshit me. Try not if you to. do, it's going to be pretty clear, and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. So what happens right in this situation, it. and part of it may be Montana values, people listen. Mm -hmm. And so uh, one case, uh, I had to set up a meeting with timber people and some pretty hardline environmental appeals people, uh, appealing and litigating stuff. And, and uh, they'd never met, never met. It was a two-hour meeting. We broke for lunch. I sat down with one of the timber guys, and he said, you know what? That son of a bitch made a lot of sense today. <laughs> you know, and so that was the beginning of, I call it the Olympic symbol syndrome, where you know the Olympic symbol has circles that overlap slightly. If you get people to focus on where that small overlap is, they find they have important shared values. And by exploring those and looking for concrete opportunities to do something on the ground mm -hmm. that reflects that shared value, the circle grows and they find that they do share a lot of things sure. and they can do more collaborative work together. And that, is, frankly, is a process that changed my pessimism about the public process of public hearings and voting where you would win-lose, win-lose. Uh -huh. It's the only process I've ever been engaged with where I've seen people change their definition of their self-interest and can see how it is broad enough to incorporate and encompass interests of people they consider to be opponents. And I'm talking about ranchers and environmentalists on the ground dealing with wolves. This is not pie-in-the-sky stuff. And agreeing on major forest initiatives between the environmental community and the timber harvesting community, finding that there's shared values to be achieved in those projects. And it, be it has been inspiring. And what's been, I mean, you mentioned putting the right people yes. in the room and putting them in the, in the right situation. Yes. In your experience, what have been the key things that you've brought to the process Okay. To set it up for success. Two things to start with. One, you've got to pick the right people. And those, I don't call up the Montana Logging Association and say, send your president. Right. Uh, same with the stock growers. Same with the environmental community. You look around for people that have the qualities I mentioned. They're, first, they have to be respected by their peers. Because when they come back from the table, if they're not respected, and they say, hey, we can work with those people. Right, goes nowhere. They go smoke some more dope. You know, talk to me later. 
they have to be responsible, not inflammatory, big mouth. They have to be willing to listen. And I'd say they have to be mature citizens. That's what I'd say. And articulate their point of view. Uh, it's pivotal. One's, these processes work by consensus. Everybody has to agree at these mm -hmm. tables. That gives the minority position a reason to stay there. They say, well, I voted to hell. I'm not going to waste my time. Uh, but it requires a level of maturity for everybody to agree to that. And if you can't agree with the majority, the rule is you have to kind of then come up with an alternative that will meet the majority's needs and yours if you, if you object to something. And people accept that responsibility. Um, the second thing is you have to be, as I said, mature enough and you're strong enough in your values that you're not afraid to hear another point of view. And, and then it happens. And, and it happens, I believe, because the other person who has been an abstract, de defined opponent or enemy is a real human being sitting across from you. And you, you find out, I, mean, I, I watched guys that are longtime opponents in the courtroom, not as jurists, but as interests, uh -huh. not as lawyers, find out their kids both played hockey. Mm. And that was a just incredible breakthrough. They started talking hockey. Sure. And suddenly it's the human bond and, and it's more broadly applied than the forums, the collaborative forums. My, that human bond has tremendous power. And I think it's all the more important in this modern world of high, high pressure, uh, deep specialization resulting in people, I think I said earlier, living in their silos and not realizing the commonality with the other human being who is part of their community. We have to find ways to have that happen in a modern society because that's what we have is a modern, high-speed, high-pressured society. If we don't have time to talk with each other, let alone our kids with these smartphones, we cannot make it. That's my opinion. We cannot make it. Yeah, and that sort of high pace, hyper-connectivity, that's interesting in the sense that now we have these technological tools that allow us to connect on a scale previously unthinkable. Absolutely. Yet, to your previous point, is that human connection? How do we kind of adjudicate what is the right type of communication and connection to move us forward in this new age of, of technology? I think it is a profoundly difficult problem, and I am incompetent, as I am in many areas, to have informed opinion. I have opinion, but there's sure. a difference. The one side is we have access to unlimited and historically unprecedented amounts of information. Mm -hmm. You know, I do on the tube or the, with my computer, and I think, you can find anything you want. Any piece of information is in your pocket. Exactly. Finding distilled information that contributes to social cohesion hmm. is a different thing. And I'm simply not competent on the web enough to know whether that sort of thing is available. But through my political research, I know the other type of information is available, where they target you yeah. because they know that you have an anger point here, either something you bought, a book you bought, they know the kind of food you eat, they know how you vote. They target you now. Yep. You don't even know you're being targeted. And that their goal is to keep you in your silo and make you more angry in your silo. I interviewed Tom Brokaw last August. And Tom's been around. He was born in North Dakota. He's a yep. rural guy. You don't have to agree with him on everything. And it's beside the point. He's a competent reporter. And in all his experience, he was, he was very pessimistic. He said that modern technology enables a degree of totally false news reports presented as facts that are designed and fed to specific groups in the community to keep them believing 
what Tom feels are just sort of extremist to wacko things is absolutely yeah. true. And this occurs on all sides of the political spectrum. Exactly. And they're manipulated deliberately to make people angry and feel abused. And that is the... I, I, I studied fascism as a child because my father was an anti-fascist journalist. So that, I was born in 47, and by the time in 51, 52, 53, I'm reading as a kid, but I was interested. Yeah. And our country was focused on the Red Menace, the Soviet Union, the post-war, uh, and the Chinese, and then there was the Korean War. So the whole focus was on the threat of communism, quote-unquote, or spreading around the world. And I was learning about fascism. And when I studied fascism, it was here you have presented to people in, with the technology of the time, we're a great nation. We were a greater nation before, but someone betrayed us. And now we have the chance to be great again. Mm. And to be great again, we need several things. First, we need to identify the enemy. Who screwed us up? In the case of the Germans, it was the Jews the plot of the Jews to destroy the nation, the alleged plot of the Jews. Uh, how do we fight this? We fight this by convincing everybody in our country and our children that they're evil, uh, not German, and we need to be ready to fight. We need to fight inside the country and outside the country because we had stuff stolen from us in the last war. They stole our property. The Jews conspired with the Western enemies. So it's on and on. It's this polarizing, multifaceted argument ending up with, we need a strong leader. Yep. And if you disagree with the leader, you're a treasonous person. You're mm -hmm. committing treason. And then you have the press and the party speak, spouting the, this party line and literally brainwashing people because they have no other source of information. Now, I don't know if that rings a bell to any of your listeners, but <laughs> it sure as hell rings a bell to me as I look around today. And I think that's the risk. It's, it's a totally alternative approach to trying to develop a community of interests, one that respects the fact that you know a lot. You're, you've lived a different life than I live. Mm -hmm. And if you don't know a hell of a lot more about some things in your life than I, than I know in relation to those things, something wrong. You obviously and vice versa. do. Yeah. And vice versa. Everybody you know knows a lot that you don't know. And if, you're, if you understand that, you don't have to be defensive about asking them questions to learn what they know that you don't know and you can benefit from knowing versus we're different. And you represent an enemy to what I believe my country needs. Mm -hmm. And that switch is very easy to throw. It's part of, our, I think, our human nature, and I don't care if you're, quote, a modern human you lived in, or a traditional person that lived from traditional cultures, agriculture or hunter-gatherer culture, we are human beings. And I think that the need... There's two, two approaches. One is to identify with a common shared interest, and the other is to say, you're a different tribe. Mm. That's one argument when you've got spears. It's another argument when you've got nuclear weapons. Absolutely. So the stakes are high. And I see today, I think I see, strong strains of our country as recently drifting into the tribalist anger mentality that can be exploited by people who know how to push those buttons. What gives you optimism that this can be fixed or changed or, or managed? My mentor was a guy named Angus Cameron, longtime editor-in-chief at Alfred Knopf, and he said to me, 
Optimism and pessimism are always always premature. Hope is not. Okay. So I wouldn't call myself <laughs> optimistic about it is going to happen, and not necessarily pessimistic. The trends are pessimistic, but I but I think his point is is apt. It's hopeful requires morally that you pursue the areas that you believe are hopeful. Mm-hmm. It's not enough to sit and say, well, it's a hopeful, there's a hopeful element and then walk away from it. It's not a passive emotion. Exactly correct. You have the obligation to pursue your hopes that you believe are good for you and good for your community and good for the world. Otherwise, as Sandra Day O'Connor would say, you're just talking the talk, not walking the walk. Yeah, there you go. And so I have hope and I have hope, with, particularly with young people that I see, and particularly young women that I interact with on the radio show and then in business, of principled young people who are energetic, committed to work, and have a, an, an intelligence that makes me say to myself, was I ever that smart? Uh, <laughs> I don't want to answer the question. But uh, that it gives me serious hope. and. Also, my lifelong experience that we are able to learn where we are mistaken. If the, if the table is set up right to help enable us to, in a non-defensive way, look at what we believe and say, you know what, I was wrong about that. Hmm. Um, I had one example of that on that trip. One of the Russian guys was very... The tour, back, yeah. Back to the, the, the road trip in the, around the country. The key producer was very uh, hostile to homosexuals. Okay. Coming from Russia, and um, he expressed it. We ended up in San Francisco at the gay district. It was called the Castro at that mm-hmm. time. And we walked around, and he was just... He was a former soldier in Afghanistan. If looks could kill, he, he could do it. Some yeah. We spent like four hours walking around filming stuff, and he listened to the interviews, which were very direct interviews on gay culture, morals, HIV, all sorts of stuff. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that four hours, we went back to the truck, and I could see he was different than when he started. I said, what'd you think? He said, those gays are just like anybody else. Yeah, They're just homosexual. Now that was extraordinary for me because here was a guy that, you know, I mean, that, that was, he had to do some soul searching, yeah. self-examination in that period of time. Right. And this guy was no easy push. I mean, this was a tough, he'd, he'd killed people in combat. Mm-hmm. So we have that potential and I think what we're faced with now is assertively seeking and finding ways to create the environments where people can listen to and learn from other perspectives of other human beings. And they don't have to take it all. You just have to absorb it as an honest expression and then think it through uh, what its implications are. Whether that's enough to counter the tendencies of siloism and Manipulation yeah. is something that's hard for me to think that it's enough, but I'm, I'm hopeful. Right. Well, I mean, we have these 
individual individual experiences with it, whether it's with your you know the, the crew person on your tour, or whether it's with you know your mayor here in, in Helena. Yes. A remarkable story, and, and we told it a few weeks back on the podcast. But you know, we've had these experiences of putting the right people in the room under the right circumstances, and these insights and and uh, epiphanies unfold. Yet, yet a question I have is: is that for lack of a better term, scalable. Like, can these individual pockets of understanding roll up into a greater outcome? That's the one of the $64 questions because in the facilitation I've done, I said no more than 10 people at the table. You might get to 12. I can't imagine that type of dynamic where people learn from each other in that intimate, direct, human way in a room of 100 people. And we're talking millions of people. Yeah. You know, Montana has a million people. Uh, can you do it in forums that travel around the, the state? I, th- I, I want to think that if you have supportive systems in place, the answer is yes. And what I would say is, there's a group that goes around that, that take, calls Republicans and Democrats together. I think it's called our Better Angels. Mm-hmm. And they have a structure where they try to get people to talk about issues and, and, and develop an appreciation for common ground elements of, of these very divergent philosophies. I've read good things about it. Uh, I wrote a book where I proposed taxing television and media advertising, like a one percent tax, to fund community ads developed in local communities about things like walking an elderly person across the street or a young person being interviewed on the job, things that take us back to the real worlds rather than the philosophical arguments about what counts in a community, um, delivering food to a hungry family. And that would be ground, grassroots-based media to counter what I would say is this overwhelming hype about you need to buy this, you need to buy that, you need to own this, you need to own that which I think is a substantial dead end. Uh, in terms of a focus, it's a dead end. Now that's a simple concept that I think would, could supplement uh, the kind of things, that, that the, the community meeting things, but it was reinforced through the media instead of polarizing information, information that is honest and deals with human beings. Those are tools we don't use in this society because right now, Media is overwhelmingly controlled by interests that want to generate profit because mm-hmm. that's their the way, and that profitable ratings don't don't correlate too well with what human beings want to hear that's good about each other. Yeah, but there are ways to look at these things. I think that are within our power. Um, whether we will do it or not, that's where I think is the pressures on us and the manipulation of our fears and concerns by demagogues can preclude that from happening. So it's, a, it's not a simple question. Sure. And thinking of the, the media, um, you know, you're a part of the media in many ways, and not that form of the media that is super profit-driven. Yeah, uh, That's in the spades in our case. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about, you know, your show's been on for over 20 years, interview show on Sundays, Montana Public Radio. What is the... Um, what is the mission of the show? The mission changed. Uh, I, I decided to do it when I was the head of the Nature Conservancy in 1993. Uh, the militia, armed militia, rose its head in Montana. 
the Freemen were active, a vigilante group that had strong feelings that the federal government had no legitimacy. Uh, there were threats issued to marshals, judges, etc. It reminded me of my childhood. Yeah. And uh, I was upset about it, and I thought, I can't do anything as, as the head of the Nature Conservancy, so I will do something. And I came up with the wacko idea of a radio show mm -hmm. where we could have rural people, and I felt these demagogues were manipulating rural people who feel defensive and disrespected in the urbanizing world to discuss issues of importance to them so they could hear other people and hear themselves not griping in the bar, but talking to each other. Yeah. So that's how it started, and it turned into something more broad in terms of subject matter, dealing with a whole range of issues. The subtitle is Changes and Choices in the American West. Well, we face a lot of changes, and we have a lot of choices, so mm -hmm. it was a, a rich field to plow in, and um, the subjects that went beyond just urban-rural issues and contentious issues it's become a forum, from my perspective, that presents a sort of a tapestry of people in Montana, a wide range of voices that, in fact, are part of our state and the fabric of our community, as well as explicit discussion of choices that we have. For example, we just recently did a show with third-generation ranch woman, Lainey White, from uh, Two Dot, Montana. Mm -hmm. And she is determined to do a better job than the previous generation, not her family, just the ranchers generally, of communicating to the urban public that this is a high-quality product that they're developing. They can trust the meat. It's, it's humanely taken care yep. of. And the, the product is very nutritional, et cetera. And she's reaching out uh, in one small way through the radio show. But I want people to hear her story. Uh, this is a real person out there that's devoting her, her life to, to this. And I, I made the mistake of going out at 5 in the morning with her on a pretty cold day <laughs> to feeding the cattle. And this is real stuff. And, and I believe that if 80 or 100 people listen to that story in Billings Sunday morning or Tuesday night when we air this shows, and we're able to feel from her story and her description of who her parents were and what values she took from them, which I bring to every show. I ask every guest, where did you grow up and what did your folks do? Because I want them to tell a human story that the listener may think, oh, I can relate to that. Now that I'm listening, they're listening to the show with a different yeah. ear than doctor so-and-so, police officer so-and-so, prisoner so-and-so, mm -hmm. drug addict so-and-so. Um, and I think, I believe that, that that humanization of the voice helps people. I want them to go away and say, you know, that was interesting. I learned something I didn't know. That's what I'd like people to say after every show. That's what it's about. Yeah, that's something we, uh, well, I certainly learned something in this conversation, and, and I think our listeners sure will as well. Um, Brian, when's the book come out? June. Uh, and if folks want to get it, I should be right here able to tell you how. I don't have the email sitting here. But Drum Lumen Press in Helena. Okay. Local uh, publisher. Yeah, they're the publisher, and um, they they have they gave me a simplified website how to order it, but I don't have it in front of me. 
Well, we'll post it on the show notes okay, and make well, sure people know. It. I think it's it's a it was published in Russia in 2008 when they showed it aired. It was 16 hours. This documentary 16 film hours. on the biggest private Russian television station, and it won a the equivalent of an Emmy award there. And I have only received the 16 hours in the CDs with in Russian, uh-huh. so it's hard for me to understand <laughs> everything that's said, but. I think it may have helped in the same sort of impact because Russian people were able to observe a wide diversity of Americans yeah. in their real time, in their real place, and we asked them serious questions, and they gave us honest answers. Well, Brian, I, I mean, we could go on and on. There's so many important things you're working on. I feel like you know we could have an episode dedicated to every one of them, but I want to be respectful of your time and... Um, yeah, just really excited to, to start the conversation with you, and I look forward to the next one. Appreciate it very much. And I just want to tell your listeners, while Justin's not listening, that of the shows that I've listened to, uh, shows of his that I've listened to, I've been very impressed. And I think that what you're doing in ways that, that strike me as effective to different generations hmm. uh, are making a serious contribution. So I very much appreciate your time and look forward to listening to more of your shows. Well, thanks very much. Take care. Okay, I really enjoyed that conversation with Brian, and I hope that you did too. Coming up next week, we have our second episode in the Sea Change series. We're bringing you a conversation with Morgan Slumberger, Marketing and Comms Director at the Blackstone Launchpad and the leader of our Pursue Your Passions program here at the University of Montana. Morgan and I are joined by Christine Liddick, Missoula restauranting legend, whose endeavors include The Redbird, The Old Post, and Bernice's Bakery. Check out our conversation next week. Thanks for listening to New Angle. We really appreciate it. And we're coming to you from Studio 49, part of the Michelle and Lauren Hansen Media Lab at the University of Montana College of Business. Remember that this podcast was supported by CED, Consolidated Electrical Distributors. These guys pretty much sell anything electrical you'd ever need, but they also hire a ton of our students. If you want to learn more about jobs at CED, visit cedcareers.com. Before we go, I want to thank some important peeps. Executive producer, Stefan Borsum. Producer, Aidan Morton. And interns, Aspen Runkle, Max Gibson, and Ellie Hanasek. Huge thanks to VTO, Jeff Ament, and John Wicks for the tunes. And finally, props to Jeff Meese, our master of all things sound. Finally, if you have any questions, suggestions, comments, insults, whatever, please email me at anewangle at umontana.edu. Help us spread the word, and be sure to use the hashtag anewangle when you do. Thanks a lot. See you next time.